Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Welcome back. We are at part two. If you were listening last week, this is the second part of that conversation. We hope that part one gave you some really good information on the legal side. I think he did a good job of like kind of going through the timeline, right? Mr. Robinson with Andrew F. And, and, you know, for us, I'm sure you could hear us fangirling. I know we were trying to play it cool in our um, intro for last week, (laughs) but yeah, no, it was, I mean, he just, we, you know, saw him at COPA and it was just, like I said, a real delight to have him on. Like, and he, I mean, he knows that case and that's just like us, right? Like, obviously he knows the case and don't get me wrong, but like in terms of, I mean, those dates, they stick with you forever. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then we kind of get into towards the end of the part two conversation, a good back and forth. We really wanted to get his take on special education now, right? Post. Yeah. Andrew F. And he had like a really lot of good insights. We had a really good back and forth conversation about kind of like the state of play, like how things are looking right now. And obviously he's in Colorado, we're in California. And so different jurisdictions. And it's always good for us to kind of showcase to you guys how like, you know, we always talk about the law is individualized. And this just really Mm -hmm. shows you how different it can be across the nation. Absolutely. I think he's in the 10th circuit. We're in the ninth. And Mm -hmm. even that, I mean, anytime we go to Copa, they go, you guys are so lucky in the ninth, right? So it was really kind of cool to be able to chat with him about that. So here we go. Part two with attorney Jack Robinson. Also, just before we get into that, we wanted to let you guys know we're taking our summer break. Oh, yes. We are ending on a really good high note. Um, This, again, is a delightful palate cleanser. We have, you know, the year behind us and we're going to get, you know, rested up. And so we can take on the 2023-2024 school year. Can you even, like... No, it's crazy. So we hope you guys enjoy your summer. We will still be on social media. We'll still be answering your questions that way. So feel free to go to our Instagram, go to our Facebook group, ask us any questions. You know, we might be busier. We might be quieter. It really just depends. Summer is, you know, a kind of a free for all. So we hope to connect with you there and you enjoy the rest of this episode. And I want to kind of shift back into what that unanimous court ruling, which I just icing on the cake, I would imagine what that did. So essentially that that school districts must offer individualized education programs that are reasonably calculated to enable a child to make progress appropriate in light of the child's circumstances. And, you know, if you were to look at this, what's bolded, reasonably calculated, what's bolded, appropriate in light of the child's circumstances, we as attorneys live for these words. What what was your initial reaction? Obviously winning, amazing at the Supreme Court. But w- when you saw those words, and I know it was a gut punch when Gorsling had initially given this de minimis, what did you think of that standard when you had read it? I know you it hadn't been applied anywhere, but just kind of reading that famous line, what were your thoughts? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and two, the, you know, our objective 
in filing the petition for a certiorari to the U.S. Supreme Court to get them to just consider the case, to take the case. We really had, you know, two aims. And the first aim was the most important aim. Second was also important, but but not as important as the first. The first being to get the Supreme Court to reject this Judge Gorsuch's, you know, merely, Gorsuch, more minimum, yeah. merely more than de minimis standard, that that cannot be, you know, the standard for an appropriate education under the IDEA. And so that was first and foremost, our objective. Second was, was to have the Supreme Court establish a new standard and obviously a, a you know, a higher sort of more rigorous standard. And you know, we had the Solicitor General, which is basically the attorney for the Department of Education, Department of Justice, Department of Defense, because there's schools on military bases, the Department of the Interior, because there are schools on uh, reservations, you know. And so the Solicitor General was on our side, right? Wow. They were arguing yeah. as well that this merely more than de minimis standard is, you know, in derogation of the purpose of the IDEA. And they had sort of a, a different standard that they proposed to the Supreme Court, which was a little different than ours. I mean, they're mm. both harmony, but kind of different wordage, different aims. And, and I think the Supreme Court, you know, struck a sort of compromise between mm. those two and, you know, adopted this language of reasonably calculated to enable a child to make progress appropriate in light of the child's circumstances. And you know, if you read the decision, right, the Supreme Court goes on to explain every single sort of term in that standard, right? Here's why we adopted this and here's why it makes sense. But they also went on to say, which I agree with, you know, every child, we're talking about, you know, children with disabilities on every, you know, end of the spectrum and, and in between. And how do we create a standard that encompasses all of these unique you know, say students. And they specifically said, hey, look, this is not a test. This is right. a standard. This is yeah. not, you know, some rubric or criteria that you input these integers or this data and outcomes mm-hmm. a determination of whether a FAPE has been offered or not. And so anyway, to me, having the Supreme Court reject, soundly reject that merely mm-hmm. the standard was, you know, huge, you know, very emotional, both personally and professionally. Yeah. You know, then also, you know, established what they termed to be a markedly more demanding standard. You know, it was was huge. It was. And I think, you know, for us practicing, you know, when we got the decision, we had been practicing a number of years, but it definitely did change things. And especially from our perspective, too. I mean, just in our lifetime, having such a big Supreme Court decision as we're practicing, you know, it had an impact on us. And, you know, we certainly use the language of Ender F in every single complaint we we file. And it's very different than, you know, pre-Ender F, of course. You know, the Ninth Circuit had a, you know, higher standard before then the Tenth Circuit than the more than the menace. So we weren't kind of in the same in the exact same situation, but it certainly helped across the board. I'm curious to, to hear where like your head's at in terms of like now that we've gone through a pandemic, it's now been several years and a pandemic since this decision came out. Have you seen in your individual cases a change? I think it takes a long time for actual systemic change to happen, but like 
where do you see it now? Like, do you see districts acting differently? Do you see judges acting differently? And like, where do you, like, do you see it, it making, continue to make a bigger impact? So a couple of things that come to mind to respond to that. You know, one is to again, reiterate, you know, to, well, to your listeners, obviously, is to think in terms of, say, pre-Andrew F. and, mm-hmm. and post-Andrew F. Pre-Andrew F., you know, and say Ninth Circuit might be a little different, but as you were saying before, you know, a lot of the circuits adopted either the exact wording of the standard, the merely more than de minimis standard, or weren't using those words, but the same concept. And, yeah. and that concept is, and it's very important to keep this in mind, is that, you know, an IEP was determined to be appropriate if the child was making some progress on some goal, right? Mm-hmm. That's what merely mm-hmm. more than de minimis means. And so that is the extent of, say, a judge's or even maybe the mindset of an IEP team is, are we making some progress on some goal? One goal, two goals, and right. how much progress? And right. so the the game changer in my mind is that post-Andrew F is that it's not is not locked only to the IEP, right? It's not mm-hmm. just data from some progress on some goal, right. but rather progress, you know, in the general education curriculum is the child, you know, achieving at grade level standards, you know, moving legitimately from grade to grade. Does that IEP enable that child to, you know, the vast majority of children who can, you know, say achieve at grade level? Are they moving from grade to grade just like every other child without mm-hmm. a disability? And to me, that that's that's huge. In that, you have to address, you know, all of the all of the issues: behavioral, right. functioning, mm-hmm. um, academics, everything. And even with children who say grade level achievement is not maybe in the cards, it still you know says, all right, this IEP has to be challenging them objectives, right? That that this child has to make appropriate progress, not only just academics, but in communication and socialization and, and you know, behavioral functioning sure. and sure. education with a capital E. So yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the second piece, you know, with regard to say the, the pandemic, it's a little bit away from Andrew F standard or Andrew F case, but and I'm curious whether you guys find the same thing, but to me, it forced school districts, schools to change on a dime, March 15th, 2020 or whatever. Mm-hmm, All of a sudden, mm-hmm. we've got to think outside the box, right? We have to figure out how we're going to do this and we got to do it overnight almost. Um, and so, and and obviously there are a lot of, you know, bumps and bruises and it didn't, you know, go well, certainly, you know, but for a lot of kids, some yeah. did you know go well for some kids. But my, I guess my point is, is I very much use that period of time to, you know, press school districts to think outside the box. You know, when they come to me and say, well, we can't do that or we don't do that, mm. whatever. It's like, mm. you did do it. You can do it. And mm-hmm. now we're, we're dealing with one child who needs it as opposed to everybody, but, but you can, right? Let's not just revert back to our caves and say, mm-hmm. this is what we have to offer. And it's too hard for us to, to do anything different. It's like, no, you, you really are flexible. You really can, you know, think outside the box and let's do that. And, and then, you know, switching, I guess, your other point about say Andrew F. I've, I've found 
in my practice. One, it does take a long time, just like Brown versus Board of Education, mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. segregation that it takes parents, takes systems to to fight for that and for people's mindsets to change and for that to become not just the law, because the law can say whatever, but but really be the mindset of how people, you know, wake up and and breathe and go throughout their day. And I do find just from my practice legally that, you know, cases are either cases, the school districts are looking at it in a different way and that Mm -hmm. cases more often settle than... Mm -hmm go to to a due process hearing, say, where, you know, a judge is tasked with divining, you know, what this Andrew F. standard means. Does that make sense? (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, no. And the law is slow. I think, as one of our law school professors used to say, it just, you know, to be able to change entire systems that, you know, a lot of these people, well, that's just how we've always done it. Um, it, You know, we really had hoped that the pandemic was a reset. um, And what we're finding now with in person, a lot of kiddos returning in person, it's just like, let's just go back to the way things were. And it wasn't even good then. So why are we like, you know, why are we going back to the way things were? And, you know, Andrew F really brought it back to the individualized education program, right? It really put that emphasis back on because I I think a lot of the trends in a lot of the school districts that we work in, it was just kind of, hey, you know, let's here's this one package deal, right? The individualization of it was completely taken away. And yeah, I I think we, you know, there was a shift. I I remember a lot of opposing counsel saying, oh, well, you know, we already had that standard here in California. It doesn't really matter. And it was like, are you insane right now? Like, what are you (laughs) talking about? Why are you settling so much quicker with me then, right? Right. (laughs) If it it was, if it didn't really change anything in California, it was very interesting to. And I think one of the things that we've seen probably one of the like bigger shifts that we've seen is looking at the in light of a child's circumstances where we've been able to utilize that for a lot of like twice exceptional kids or kids who are suffering mental health challenges whereas before these two special populations might have been considered they're doing just fine academically so therefore they either don't need an IEP or they don't need any support being that it doesn't directly relate in their eyes to the academic reading, writing, and arithmetic, where it's like the twice exceptional child or the child, and those could be the same child, of course, suffering mental health challenges, that these are their circumstances. And for them to be challenged in light of these circumstances, it means something different than a child who is just you know, a grade below in reading. And I think that was something that we always struggled with, like twice exceptional kiddos, getting schools to really understand that concept of challenging them. Whereas maybe we're getting slow, slowly to that point where it's understood a little bit better. Right. And I think, you know, another part of the decision that, that I thought I think is important and that I use is really towards, is at the end that, you know, pre-NDRF cases, you know, courts always would say, hey, look, you know, we're courts of law. We don't make educational policy. Mm-hmm. We need to defer to, you know, school, you know, school staff, you know, whatever. And in my world, you know, the school district attorneys would sort of throw that back at, at us and say, hey, look, you know, even the courts are saying, you know, give us deference, you know, if, if in doubt, you know, our decision 
wins type thing. But the Supreme Court in Andrew F. does say, yeah, you know, we do. We're not going to substitute our own notion of educational policy for school authorities. Um, and yes, school authorities are entitled to, to deference, but that deference is based upon your application of, of expertise and your application of sound judgment and that you have to provide the parents a cogent yes. um, explanation as to why you're doing what you're doing. And, and that does, I have seen, you know, I think school districts are taking that to heart and like PWNs or prior written notices, you know, I can force them or, or they are providing, say, prior written notices with a, at least, you know, a more robust explanation as to why they're making the decisions they're making or rejecting the parents' requests when they are. And if they don't, then, you know, I can use that or we can use that to say, look, you know, here's the explanation you gave to the parents of why you did it. Don't tell something different now that we're in court as to the wisdom of what you're doing. You know, you had an opportunity to provide this cogent (laughs) explanation and you got to live, live by that. And, um, so I, I think that that is important for sort of parents to know and, and school folks to to remember that it's not your way or the highway, right? And mm-hmm. you can't just say, well, we're making this decision because, well, we're the ones who make the decision and, you know, take it or leave it type thing. No, right, right. you need to consider the parent's request and you need to provide a cogent, you know, reasonable explanation for it. And if you don't, then, you know, a court will look at that more critically. And we'll get you. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mr. Robinson, we've taken up a lot of your time. We are so grateful to you uh, for this opportunity to have you come speak to our listeners. We have a wider range of listeners. So what is one thing that you would kind of want to leave with them, either about your experience taking this case or just what you've seen in your years of practice? Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with? In I mean, terms I guess of this would, area of the law? <laughs> to me, you know, I guess it would be communication and, and collaboration and that nobody has the, you know, the absolute right answer. You know, I feel like just in my practice, right, is that's my goal. That's my desire is to obviously yeah. to get what the child needs, what's in their best interest. And people have disagreements about that mm-hmm. and that, you know, if they listen to each other, they care about each other and, and collaborate, then you and I be out of a job, maybe. Yeah. Hey, we're, here. Be we're nice. for it. Yeah, we're for <laughs> it. I mean, you're preaching to the choir. That was excellent. Excellent. So, Ms. Robinson, if anybody wanted to get in touch with you, what would be the best way for them to reach out? They could probably find me on our website at sprlaw.net. You know, my paralegal is Mary Lakey Green. Um, I think that if they Googled us, they could probably find us all right. Excellent. Thank you so much, listeners. We hope that you enjoyed these episodes as much as we did. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.